very confused. So last year, I went to a small tech conference in New York. I guess we were kind of representing the company that we were working for, me and two colleagues. But in reality, we were just there for the free food. Please, tuck in. So the main talk at this conference was uh, about vision technology for people with visual difficulties. It was actually pretty cool. But the lady that was speaking said something that really took me by surprise. It was the keynote speech of this evening, the main event. And for some reason, this lady, during her talk, felt the need to say, make a comment on how Africans all look the same and Asians all look the same. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I was so shocked. I looked over. All I could do was look over to my two colleagues with a look that kind of said, did she really just say that? This face right here. And I was, I was infuriated. Uh, for me, one of the, one of the things uh, that ranks very high on my list of injustices that makes me angry is racism. It's a very long list, which I won't go in, in, into today. But I really wanted to call that comment out in that moment and say something about it. But for whatever reason, I didn't. I didn't speak out. I didn't even make a private comment after the conference. And I'm not sure if it was because I was afraid of uh, being overly sensitive or afraid that people would push back against me. But whatever the reason, that night, I was absolutely kicking myself. And I thought, why didn't I have the courage? I wished I'd had the courage to speak out in that moment. So today, we're going to carry on reading about uh, someone in the Bible who's got an incredible amount of courage, Esther. We're going to pick up the story at chapter 4, verse 6. I'll just give you a very quick recap. So turn, it, turn with me in your phones or your Bibles. It'll be up on the screen as well, uh, Esther 4, uh, verse 6. So King Xerxes, king of Persia, and he went to find a new queen, and somehow this young Jewish orphan, Esther, had became chosen as the new queen. There's another character, Haman, who is one of, uh, well, he's the second most powerful man. He's kind of like a prime minister for the king. And he hates Mordecai, this Jewish man that has adopted Esther. And he hates him so much, he wants to kill all of the Jews. And so the Jewish people are facing genocide, like complete destruction. Now, Esther has an attendant called Hathak, and she sends him uh, sends Hathak to talk to Mordecai, and that's where we're going to pick up here. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king, in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. 
When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I thank God for that reading. Mordecai and Esther's plan is fraught with peril. For Esther to approach the king is against the law and puts herself at risk of execution. If that isn't incredible courage, I don't know what is. But Mordecai gives Esther something of a warning. Like, just because you're queen doesn't mean you get away scot-free. And he also gives her a little nudge. He mentions that this crazy situation that they're in it surely must be divine providence. It must be the work of God. That somehow a Jewish orphan has become queen of Persia. And not only that, but it happens right at the moment where the Jewish people need a hero the most. Someone in a position of influence to speak for them. It must be the work of God. And the incredible thing about the book of Esther is that God isn't mentioned at all. There's only one other book in the Bible where that happens, which is Song of Songs, and that's a lot shorter. So this is quite impressive. But the great thing is we can see God's hand at work through every chapter of Esther. His divine hand and providence. God is always at work. Esther's response to Mordecai is not to ask for money or to ask for an escape plan. She doesn't really think about herself here. Her first thought it points to God. She asked Mordecai to gather all of the Jews to fast for three days. Now, in the book of Esther, it doesn't even mention prayer, which is also quite impressive. So, in the Old Testament, when people are fasting, it is always when they're seeking God, humbling themselves before God in fasting and prayer. And so, that's Mordecai and Esther's first response is to seek God, is to humble themselves in fasting and prayer. And then Esther finishes by saying, if I perish, I perish. She is willing to risk her life to save others. That is incredible courage. And her first thought is to God, and this thought is for other people that she needs to save, which is incredible. And her humility and selflessness is plain to see. So, King Xerxes is in his royal palace, sitting at his royal throne, and holding his golden scepter, which looks suspiciously like a pool noodle, and wearing 
his royal robes made of the finest materials from Marks and Spencer. <laughs> Without being summoned and at the risk of her life, Esther stood to approach the king. But Xerxes was pleased with her and held out his gold scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will grant your request even if it is up to half my kingdom. If it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once so that we may do what Esther asks. So, the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. They drank the finest of wines and ate great food to their heart's content. Some foot pretzels as well. Esther stood again to approach the king without being summoned. The other people, in their best shocked voices, gasped. Very good, G2. Again, Xerxes asked Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. If the king regards me with favor, let the king of Haman come tomorrow to the fact that I will prepare for them. Then I will ask for the king of Haman stood up to leave in high spirits from this banquet. The people stood out of fear of the hot-headed Haman. The people stood out of fear. <laughs> You're not afraid enough, people. <laughs> but Haman saw Mordecai. Where's my Mordecai? I can't see him. Oh, he's so relaxed, I couldn't even see him behind there. Haman saw Mordecai, didn't show fear in his presence. Haman was filled with rage. This man dares to find me, mighty Haman. Haman left to go back home, and the people sat down. Haman complains to his wife and friends, who tell him to have a pole set up so that Mordecai can be impaled on it. So he goes to set up this pole. And that night, the king couldn't sleep. Oh, I can't sleep! <laughs> he reads some history books and sees that Mordecai once foiled an assassination plot and saved his life. Xerxes is surprised that nobody has honored Mordecai. So he asks Haman. What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman thought to himself. He must be thinking about the amazing, incredible. Haman described the most majestic way he could think of to parade himself through the kingdom. Bring a royal robe that the king has worn, get a horse that the king has rode on, and we lead him through the city streets proclaiming, This is what is done to the man of the kingdom. Xerxes is pleased with the suggestion and says, Go at once and do as you have suggested. But wait, Xerxes says, Do as you suggested for Mordecai, the Jew. Haman tries his best to hide his anguish. No! <laughs> so Mordecai enters the royal palace to receive his honor, 
Haman robed Mordecai with royal robes the king had worn and led him through the city on a horse the king had ridden, which was too much of a budget for this production. <laughs> the people in their loudest voices give a big cheer for Mordecai. <laughs> What I found really interesting when looking at this character of Haman was just how much he is the polar opposite of Queen Esther. Esther has humility and courage, but Haman has pride and fear. Humility and courage, pride and fear. Haman is such a proud man that he struts through the kingdom expecting everybody else to stand up and shout his praises. And he is so infuriated when Mordecai doesn't do that. When he sees him, he is so angry and he's so afraid of losing his power that he doesn't just want Mordecai dead. He wants all of the Jewish people dead. As Lydia spoke about last week, God loves those who are humble God loves those who are insignificant in society. Perfect love casts out fear, and God is perfect love. Haman doesn't have any humility. Haman wants to be the most significant person in society. There's no room for perfect love in his life because he only cares about power and wealth. And because he clings to power and wealth, he is so afraid of losing it all. Esther, on the other hand, is humble, has God's perfect love, and has this incredible spirit of courage, an incredible spirit of courage to fight injustice. She approaches the king, risking her life, not once, not twice, but three times a later. <laughs> so we've seen Esther... So that was a bit of Commodores for you from the 70s. Any fans of the Commodores? We've seen Esther's first request to the king, inviting him to the first banquet. We've seen Esther's second request to the king, inviting him to the second banquet. Why don't we see the third and final request Esther makes? The king and Haman are present for Esther's second banquet. It's even more beautiful than before with the finest food and every person was served with a glass of the finest vintage Perignon from 1979 BC. Again, Esther stands to approach the king without being summoned. The people gasp. And as they were drinking vintage wine on the second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. King Xerxes was shocked and bewildered. The king asks Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. Adversary and enemy, 
Round of applause for our actors, please. One time at medical school, I went to see a colonoscopy. Okay, this is definitely related. I was on a placement in colorectal surgery at King's College Hospital in London with another student called Lucy. And on our first day, we were in the department and we were scheduled to go and see some colonoscopies to learn about the procedure. Now, when we arrived, a colonoscopy was already, I like the sniggers every time I say colonoscopy. Uh, so when we arrived, there was one already in progress and we thought, okay, the best thing to do, the most professional thing to do is not to, not to go in, we'll wait until the next one, rather than barging in while this poor patient has got a probe up his butt. That's a bit of medical jargon for you there. So instead of going in, we waited 10 or 15 minutes in the department and got out our medical handbooks to refresh our knowledge of the procedure. And we saw a man walking in and out of the treatment room a couple of times. We thought, could this be our consultant? We didn't really know what he looked like. But once the procedure had finished, the next patient was being brought in, we seized that opportunity to go into the treatment room and ask the doctors if we could attend. Turns out this man was in fact our consultant. He had seen us waiting outside, and he started telling us off. He was having a go at us for wasting time, for not coming into the earlier procedure, and this, was, this conversation was while we were standing in the treatment room. Uh, the, patient, the next patient was getting prepped, the other healthcare staff were just carrying on with the procedure, but that didn't stop this consultant from absolutely ripping into us. And frankly, if we had gone in, it would have been unprofessional and unempathetic to the patient, and, but he wasn't having any of it. And this was the man that was gonna give us a pass or a fail for this placement. If he failed us with this placement, we would have to repeat the whole year of medical school. And the other student, Lucy, I could see that she was looking a little bit scared. Her face was a little bit flushed. And so I positioned myself in between the consultant and my colleague, Lucy. And he didn't like that at all. He didn't like that I was standing up to him. He didn't like that I wasn't cowering in fear and begging him for forgiveness. And he came up to my face, literally this far away, and he carried on his tirade, and he called me a cocky S-word, right to my face, while the patient is in the room who could probably hear everything. You're normally only lightly sedated with this procedure, a little bit of medical trivia for you there. And I was, I mean, I was shocked. I couldn't understand why this consultant was acting this way. And this was the man that was gonna pass or fail us. But I didn't let that stop me from standing up to him. I didn't let that stop me from doing what was right. And later that night, I wrote a two-page complaint to the Dean of Medical Education at King's College Hospital. And we were moved to a different firm, and this consultant didn't have any students placed with him after that. Doesn't this man, this consultant, remind you of someone in the story of Esther? In Isaiah chapter 41, it says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you.
I'll go back to the previous one. Thank you. Esther and Mordecai have incredible courage, but where does it come from? It doesn't come from just within themselves. No, we read as they went to seek God in fasting and prayer, they asked God for courage, for help. And God took them by their right hand and said, do not fear, I will help you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This is the spirit that God gave to Esther and Mordecai. This is the spirit. He didn't give them a spirit of timidity. He gave them a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline, a spirit of courage to fight injustice. God gives us a spirit of power. Esther stood up to King Xerxes. Mordecai stood up to Haman. God gives us a spirit of power to face insurmountable odds, to stand up to an angry consultant, to speak out against injustice, to leave our comfort zone. God gives us a spirit of love. Esther and Mordecai had deep love for their people and a deep love for God, and it motivates so many of their actions. Would Esther have risked her life to save her people if she didn't have a spirit of love? God gives us a spirit of love that radiates around us, that puts others before ourselves, that extends a hand of friendship to a stranger, a love that conquers hatred, even hatred that almost destroys an entire nation of people. God gives us a spirit of self-discipline. Esther could have made her request all in one go, right at the beginning, just skip to the end and say, I need you to save all of the Jewish people. But she doesn't do that. She held back. She bided her time. She was patient. She kept her emotions in check. She stuck to her plan and played the long game. God gives us a spirit of self-discipline. Self-discipline to not take half measures, to not back away from doing what's right. The self-discipline to stick to our plans. The self-discipline to stay close to God even when the going gets tough the self-discipline to be different. God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity. Now, when we see injustice, God doesn't want us just to just look on idly by. He wants us to care. He wants us to get righteously angry. And he's given us a spirit of courage. He's, he's not let us out into the world alone. He takes us by our right hands and says, do not fear, I will help you. And he doesn't give us a spirit of timidity. He gives us a spirit of courage to fight injustice. A spirit of courage to fight injustice.
I wonder if any of you can think of a time in your life when you've seen some kind of injustice, big or small, where perhaps you didn't have the courage to do something about it. Like when I heard a racist comment at a tech conference and I didn't say anything. Or perhaps a time when you did have the courage, like when I stood up to an angry consultant. Maybe a toxic person at work, an abusive manager. Maybe you've seen sexism or racism or discrimination or bullying and harassment. Maybe there was a time when you wanted courage to not do what everybody else was doing and go your own path. Maybe, maybe a time when you saw something on the news that sparked something in you. Maybe the failures of government or society and it sparked something in you and you wanted to take action. Maybe you saw a homeless person shivering at the side of the street. So what I'd like us to do is to think about really those, those two things. A moment in your life when you've been thankful that you've had some courage, that God has given you courage, or perhaps a moment in your life in the past, or even now, that you're searching for courage to do something to fight injustice. Can we have the two questions up on the screen? Thank you. So what I'd like us to do is to use the paper plates. We might need to give out some more if you've used them for food. But I'd like you to pick up some pens. Uh, we're going to put some music on. Uh, feel free to chat amongst yourselves as well. But I'd like you to write something. This is just a, suge a suggestion of what to write. But I'd like you to think about these two things. Or you might just want to write a prayer or a, something else about courage and injustice. And feel free to keep them. But what we'd like to do, if you feel comfortable, you don't have to sign it. But we'd like to, we've, you'll, you'll see that they'll have hole, they have holes punched in them. We, we'd like to make a banner of the messages of courage and the stories of courage and injustice that we have in this community and make a banner out of it. Don't feel like you have to give it in, but let's answer these questions and have a think for five or 10 minutes. 